y'all, why don't you uh, grab your Bibles and open them up to 1 John chapter 4. I will as well. And we will get rolling. Um, I want to do this before we get started. I just want to say thank you. Um, for us, for my wife and myself, just in, in and through this season, um, this 15-month season, we started about 21 months ago and from our Acts 29 assessment with Pastor Jeff to today, uh, we have been loved by you guys. And just even as I was trying to renew my mind to just prepare for this message, um, it felt so unworthy to preach this message because of how um, I'm very considerate of myself more often than not. You know what I mean? Very love myself quite a bit, and and what I've seen in the witness and the testimony of Generations Church is that you guys are some of the most generous, selfless people I've ever met, and you have an incredible pastor and pastoral team, and so we just want to extend gratitude. Thank you. I pray that in this life we get the opportunity to be as selfless to you as you all have been to us. So let's do this. 1 John 4. I'll start this timer, let's pray, and let's dive in. Pastor Jeff saw my notes, and he said, here's a timer. So <laughs> let's try this thing out. All right, so let's pray. Father God, thank you for um, this season where we just get to recalibrate our, our, our hearts and, and reorient our hearts and renew our minds even, even in the movement of our bodies, where we're going, where we're heading, what we're seeing, the stories we're telling, what we're listening to, everything is, is meant to be around the advent, the coming of Christ. The baby born in a manger, the baby born in weakness to give us life. God with us that we might be with him. And so, God, I pray for us, and I pray for myself, and I pray for us because our hearts are noisy, because for whatever reason, the, the false stories that the world is telling, be it of consumerism of, or, or whatever it may be during this season, uh, tend to just clutter and give a lot of noise, um, when really what we want is to pr- prepare you room, that you might be born again in our hearts anew this season and that we might be born again to the hope of Advent that you are coming again, that you're returning so that our faith and our hope and our joy and our peace and our love that comes out of us is a reflection of a kingdom that is coming. So would you have your lordship in us, your kingdom in us as we prepare for that day when it is on earth as it is in heaven? Coming is the day when you will make all the sad things untrue, when you will right all the wrongs, and all things will be new. Lord, I want to serve my friends this morning and put on the servant's apron to love them well uh, as they have loved us well. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. All right. So I'm going to puddle jump through 1 John a little bit, if if you're okay with that. Uh, We'll start in 1 John. Uh, I'm going to read out of 3, but then if you hold your place in 4, that's primarily where we'll be. Uh, But I want to talk about a few things first. Like like Advent just means coming. And, and, And as has been told over the last few weeks, 
As we look at Advent, what we're looking forward to now, because Christ has come in that season of anticipation and longing and, and, and expectation, finally fulfilled, fulfilled in Israel's Messiah and in our Messiah, now we look forward to the coming of Christ and our future Advent. And so if I could give... Uh, if I could give, there it is. All right. If I could give you uh, just a summary statement of Advent real quick. Advent is a season of preparing room in our hearts for Jesus by rehearsing the gospel story each day. It can be a season of renewal and recalibration as we, or, we reorient and reset life to revolve around God's story. Some call this the restoring of our hearts. It's James K. A. Smith in, in, in one of his works. Hope of the second Advent restories our hearts to live in the darkness of now with the hope, joy, and peace, and love in a sense of what is coming. So, so that's my summary of where we have been. So as I dive into what, what, where we're now headed in terms of this, this concept of love, like, like, man, there's so much opportunity to over-preach this. Because like, if there's a mega theme throughout the whole of Scripture, what is it? <laughs> God's love for us, right? So, so you could come at it from so many different angles. I just wanted to pick up a few, and I wanted to get the story told by, by, uh, by John, John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, whose very identity is that he is loved by God. Like, that's quite an identity to embrace throughout his life. So this, not, some, would, some would say, some would postulate that he wrote 1 John at age 90, and I find it interesting that our culture, when we look for love experts, we might talk to an R&B artist, you might talk to Barry White, you might talk to Dr. Drew, you might talk to whatever radio pundit, whatever CNN host, you might talk to some celebrity, but when it, in our culture, that's who you talk to. But when you get to the Bible, when we want a love expert or an expert on somebody who has loved well, we ask a 90-year-old man. I love that. And I love the way that he's going to share about love because he's going to talk about love in a way that, that shows, in a sense, that seasoned maturity with it. And if you've ever had a conversation with a wise, godly, elderly person, you know this. Things are short and sweet and succinct and simple, aren't they? Why? Because, because they don't know how long they have, man. They're going to be at the end of the sentence and, and at some point. So they got to get it out there. Can't, they ain't got time to beat around the bushes with fluff and stuff that does not matter. Is this true? And so as you read the book of 1 John, you're going to hear John speak this way, and it's like you're sitting at coffee with, with this elderly man who, who's sharing with you about God's love, and he's going to start on God's love. He'll rabbit trail for a minute. He'll forget what he said, and he'll come back to it, and he'll say it again, and he'll say it another way, and he'll say it another way. And by the time you're done, what you do is you have this thorough understanding of seasoned maturity because Christian maturity, as I understand it in the scriptures, is not in your identity building at work, your identity building in finance, your identity building at church. It's in that you are loved and that you extend yourself in love. Always think back to Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where he says this. He says, uh, I, I used to be a child. I thought like a child. I acted like a child. I did childish things. He says, now I'm a man. And, and the implication is I do man things. Set in the context of the great love chapter of the Bible. 
See, my, my belief is that, that to be mature as a Christian is to learn to, gr- to grow into love. Now, you're probably asking yourself this. Am I here on Christmas to get a Hallmark, like, movie message about why I should love other people? Right? Isn't that every single message that I hear everywhere? Anybody else on a Christmas guilt overload? <laughs> or is it just me? I mean, how many opportunities are there to love people? Goodness gracious, if you're in the church, like there, is, there, there, there are at least 15 daily. Through, I don't know if you have your iCal, but you should see mine for the month of December. And I'm like, is there love happening in any other month other than that? Maybe February. But like, is there, I actually talked to a, ch- a large church that's just known for their mercy ministries recently. And um, and I was asking them about what they do during November and December, and they told me, hey, we don't do anything during the months of November and December because that's when a lot of back padding ha- self-backpatting happens. Like when, when everybody else shows up to do mercy ministry, November and December, right? We're grateful on Thanksgiving, and then here's Christmas, and we're going to love somebody at Christmas because that's what we should do. We should love people at Christmas. That's, that's what we do, right? Which is not a bad message, but then they said, hey, we want to be there throughout the rest of the year when, when all this supply is gone, when, when everybody else is, is gone. And so, like, like, if you're like me, there is an overload right now of opportunities to love people. And, and did you ever love people more by, by guilt? Like, like, when you were guilted, did you ever feel like, gosh, I know I don't love people enough. And did that warm your heart to love people more? Or, or did it produce the kind of ice water that right now during this season, that's the last thing that we need? I mean, we do it at Christmas from the age of three, right? I mean, we just, we start them early. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. You know who's coming to town. Right? I mean, the guilt starts early, and what that doesn't do is that doesn't produce love in us. And so what I don't want to do for you this morning is give you the Hallmark movie message of we should love people at Christmas. Sometimes I think as a church, we tend to project that upon the world to where that's the message that they hear when the message of the coming of Christ is not that we should love. The message of the coming of, the coming of Christ is that we have been loved. We're more loved than we dare hope. But the message of the coming of Christ is not in what we do for God, it is in what he has done for us once and for all in his coming. And what produces love but the fact that we are loved. And I was, Matt stole my sermon a couple weeks ago when he said it. He said right out of Luke chapter 7 when he, when he pointed to the, woman, um, to, to the woman caught in adultery, or not, or not the woman caught in adultery, but the woman of ill repute who came to Jesus' feet and she broke the vial of spikenard over his uh, feet and she washed his, uh, his feet with her tears. And, and Jesus gave the parable to the, uh, to the self-righteous Pharisees who were there and said, two guys. Hey, hey, one of them has is, is been forgiven a $5 debt, and the other one has been forgiven a debt he could never repay. Who loves more? And, and you know the answer, like, and they, they know the answer, the one who's been forgiven the, the debt that they could never repay. It seems like 
for us to love at Christmas and understand love at Christmas and, and, and get out of the guilt, the guilt cycle that kind of happens here around this time of year, that, that, that we ought not be reflecting upon how little we love. And instead, be reflecting upon just how much we have been loved because those who've been forgiven much, love much. And so, so my intention this morning is we look at just kind of 10 quick, quick bullet points on love is to share with you just how much you've been loved that, that might awaken love in you. Okay, so here's our overarching thing, main, main idea. God's love revealed in Jesus coming is covenantal, it's unconditional, it's adoptive, it's affectionate, it's personal, it's sacrificial, present, secure, initiating, and practical. And if I'm looking at my clock, I know we're going to have to be quick. So <laughs> let's do this. All right, let's start with that first one, covenantal and unconditional. God's love revealed in Jesus' coming is covenantal and unconditional, bound up in God's everlasting covenant of grace with his people. This word covenant is a big one. We don't use it often in our culture, but it's kind of implicit in the word agape, which John is going to use 36 times in, in 1 John. 36 times, just in his epistle. Okay, so, so implicit in this is this, that God's love is not transactional. It's not I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's not a trading of goods and services or trading of works. God's love is fixed upon himself and his love for his glory, so much so that he poured out his grace upon us because he wanted to glorify himself. And then he made an unconditional covenant with us that said, hey, Jeremiah 31, is there sand on the seashore? Do you see grains of sand? If you can count them, then you can end my covenant with you. You see stars in the sky? Do you see them in the night sky? Can you count them? Well, if you can, then you can end my covenant with you. If not, it's an everlasting covenant. So that when we define love, and that's the question, isn't it? That's the next question is, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, right? I mean, <laughs> what is love? <laughs> when we define love, we have to define it as the Bible defines it. Now, I could go a dozen different places, but all the world is going to do, and I, had, I have for you Webster's, and I had for you uh, a couple of, uh, there it is. I love, according to West Webster's, strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. An example would be maternal love for a child. Uh, Attractional-based or sexual desire, affectionate and tenderness felt by lovers, or affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interest. You see, the world, when it loves, and we'll skip the other definition, but the world, when it loves, when it understands it, love is fixed upon conditions. Love is fixed upon somebody else doing something for you, and because you have them doing this, you do this, and you trade those goods and services, if you do your role, if you keep your vows, if I'll keep mine, and then we both do our part, then we'll stay in love. God says in a covenant, a binding agreement before God and men, you've heard it at marriages a, a thousand times, when you break yours, when you break your vows, when you break your promises, I love you. I'm not going away. I won't leave you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, I'm going to fulfill your vows that you couldn't fulfill. 
I'm going to do everything that you couldn't do. Live perfectly the life you should have lived. Died the death that you deserved. To perfect this covenant. So that now you stand as if you have kept the covenant. So that you as Christians stand as if you lived Jesus' perfect life. Because he stood as if he lived yours. He's the covenant keeper. It's not a contract, right? It's a covenant. His love is unconditional. When we take the ring off and throw it at Jesus, he loves us still. Implicit in the word agape, and I love, I love the Jesus Storybook Bible like definition of love, which was like God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. He's a covenant keeper. When we understand this, that, that, that implicit in this word agape, that, okay, we need to keep going. All right, next. Okay, so <laughs> that's one and two, so we're close. All right, so let's go to three, God's adoptive love, and then let's read First John chapter 3. It says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes thus in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, this side of the cross and this side of eternity, here's where we go. Like that concept, we're all children of God, which is not true. Ephesians 2.1 says that, that we were sons and daughters of wrath. Okay. But, but, but even, this, even in this sense, the sense that we want that to be so, is, it, it's, it's because of this, this understanding of God's love. That God loves like a father. And even for those who are far from him, they want that to be true. I spoke to a, a Muslim recently who had this very Christian understanding of God and, and said to me, I, I view God as a father. And I'm like, not because of the Quran, you don't. Not because of your story, but because of our story. Because in our story, there was this big, glorious, holy God who condescended, who, who humbled himself and took upon himself flesh and made himself knowable and understandable. In our story, God became a father. His character is that of a father. To where Jesus, when Jesus enters the scene and begins to call himself the son of God, we understand that an entirely new relationship with God has just been entered into. That was spoken of in the Old Testament, but it was foreign. And so when he gets there and Jesus is speaking to God directly with unhindered, uninhibited access, talking to God already before the throne of God, speaking to God, it's, it's like there's no wedge, there's no separation, there's nothing that blocks him from talking to God. And then he goes to a cross 
and he turns the throne of judgment into a throne of grace to which we can come boldly, he goes to that cross and now invites you into his very relationship with God. Not that you would be God, not that you would be divine, but that you would understand that you're a child of God and you can lift your eyes like, a, like an adopted child who comes to a home where they're lavished grace and love and, and they real, it takes time for them to understand, I'm loved. I am loved. It's like, do I, do I get to have this food? And, and yeah. Do I get to sit on your lap? Yeah. Do I get to, do I get to play with that? Yeah. And so we're growing into our understanding of just how much we've been loved as adopted children. Not of displeasure, not of his displeasure, but of his pleasure. So that you move forward in your Christianity from approval and not for it. God's pleased with you and you dwell under his smile as a Christian, as a child of the living God. And God does not unadopt his kids. There's something that happens, and I don't want to belabor this point, but there's something that happens to, I can just say this as a man, to our selfishness when God drops ch children into our laps, right? Like, I didn't even like kids before I had kids. I'm just being honest. Anyway, but like, like, like. Then I had mine, right? And, and all of this selfishness that I've been praying for years, God, would you begin a work of just removing this that I see in myself that I can't change? How good is God that in the very natural transitions in life, very natural things like having kids, he begins to remove selfishness and replace it with joy. And I remember taking my daughter home, and we'd been praying for seven years. And I remember taking her home the first night, was it September 26th? She was born on the 25th. I brought her home. My wife was exhausted, and she got in bed, and I had this pink swaddled, like camouflage swaddle, just in case she got lost in Bath and Body Works or something. But like, <laughs> like camo, anyway, I just had her on my chest. And you remember that? That's a holy moment. Like dads, just moms and dads. But you know, that's a holy moment when you set your kid on your chest like that for the first time. You remember that? And I just remember just weeping. Because I have, it was terrifying. I have never felt so vulnerable as to love something so much that I would do illegal things to protect her. And just afraid of being known like that. And, 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 and it's something about daughters, too, because, I mean, it's your daughter. There's this protective element that you have. Like, imagine this. Like, like, that's not even a raindrop of the ocean of God's love for us, for his kids, for my kids, for your kids. You know that holy moment where you feel the fatherhood of God and you love, and that's just a touch. God loves like that. 
And he says us embracing that identity, us stepping into understanding what that identity is in a sense that we're not stowaways on Jesus' train anymore. We're covered in his righteousness now, sons and daughters. How good is God that progressive sanctification or being made holy happens through just resting in that and that? That like that newborn, we just get to rest on his chest? That that's how he changes us? I I thought I had so much more to do, God. (laughs) He's like, no, like a child. God's love is adoptive. Okay, let's let's keep going. We're going to flip to four. You're like, you're only at three, dude, and you got like 12 minutes. Okay, four. Verse seven of chapter four, it says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's repeat that. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. All right. God's love is affectionate. God's love is seen in his affectionate desire to save us. Love is his very character, and he defines it. Now, love is not God, okay, but God is love. Okay. God is more than love. But everything he does, like, like, I don't know, sweetener, stevia, right? Everything he does is flavored by his love. Even his wrath, ultimately, is because of a rejection of his divine love. God is love, meaning I am not love. I don't have an organ in my body that produces love. I don't have a cartoon heart. It just beats out my chest where I can go to something within myself to gain love and get love. Love stands outside of me, and I've got to go to God to get it. So that my going to God to get love, when I go to God to selfishly get God, then I can selflessly be poured out in love for others. In a sense, when my wife and kids aren't on the throne of my worship, they're loved more, not less. When God is on the throne of my worship and I go to him, they're going to be loved more. God is love. He doesn't just have love. It's not like he has it in a backpack and he's like, hey, you need some love. No, no, no. He is love. It's the very nature of his character. Now, I, I, used, to, I used to, when I was a younger man, say, I'm 36. All right, so when I was a younger man, I used to say this, like, love is Love, love isn't fallen into or out of, it's chosen. It's chosen, and, and that choice started with God. Very true. Very true. But there is this element of desire that I think we, re, that's a reductionistic statement now as I think about it. Because, hey, listen, uh, now, like, my wife and I, my bride and I, like, we get excited when we get to go to Target together. You know what I mean? We get excited with, like, when there's no kids and we're like, we're at Target. Is this, like, a date night? I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, the kids fall asleep early. It's like, it's seven. They're asleep. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, we feel like that's exciting. So, so, so like, maybe as a younger man where I was more prone to be uh, emotional, like, 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 I had to remind myself, hey, hey, love is not falling into or out of. It's chosen. Right? <laughs> Thanks. Right? I mean, like, 
But now, but now get, getting older, like, like, hey, you know what? I see that love is very much something that I want to put logs on the fire of love and create and, sh- and make sure that, I, maybe I'm not creating, but, but see God, like, ignite that thing. Not lighter fluid, like, not the flashing of lighter fluid or things that are just there in a moment and gone. But desire is not a bad thing. And that's birthed in our being created in the image and likeness of God who is jealous in desire. First for his glory. And because for his glory, he's wrapping you into that and like in a sense just taking your head and being like, look at this, right? And doing one of those to where you see that and you go, now I'm truly loved. Like I'm loved in this. Like, God is jealous for his glory, and that's the most loving thing he could ever give us. Check this out. I don't know if you guys are okay with this, but the Bible is, so. God loves God. And because he loves you, he wraps you into that jealous affection he has for his own glory and shows it to you. And your heart is satisfied in that. You're like, I read that. John Piper. (laughs) His love is affectionate. Okay, let's keep going. Personal. God's love is personal. And yeah. Verse 9. says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Check that out. That's the Christmas verse right there. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us in that. That that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have, in this is love. Now here's our, here's our, like our, uh, you know, our freedom from guilt verse. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'm going to read verse 11 and 12 as well. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Okay. So, all right. God's love is personal. God's love is seen in that he desires to be known. And in Jesus reveals all that he would have you to know about himself. God was not satisfied by a long-distance relationship, but drew near to be known in his humanity. He is fully disclosed in his character. And so I, I love Hebrews 1.3 that says that, that, that he is the expressed image of God's person, the brightness of his glory. And, and the word that he uses there is one of a mold. Okay, and it's, it's like this, that all of God's glory was poured into a mold. I heard Eric Mason say one time it was all his Shekinah glory packed up into flesh and zipped up, in a skin suit and zipped up. And I'm like, that's pretty good. I'm like, it is all that God wants you to know about himself is seen in Jesus Christ. I had an old seminary prof who used to say it like this. He said, I shall see no more of God in heaven than Christ Jesus. That's what God wants you to know about himself. Now, we all know this, that that if you want to extend love to another person, if you love another person, you don't text, 
You don't snap. Or maybe you do text, but that's after, right? You don't snap or Snapchat or whatever it is. You don't post. What do you do first? When you got to have the DTR. You know what a DTR is? I don't know what that is. Determine the relationship. Okay. What do you do? You show up in person. Like that's a person face-to-face conversation, isn't it? That now, now this is kind of lost on us with all of our technology. But back in our day, right in the in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 00s, is that what they call them? They haven't given us a name for them yet. I don't know. Uh, but, but back in our day, here's what. He, we made mixtapes, right? And mixtapes were the pregame calisthenics, right, for the DTR. Because all you needed to say vaguely could be said by Bon Jovi before you even got there. And so you can imagine the conversations that were coming out of this. It's like, uh, did you really mean what Bon Jovi said in that song? Like... No, no, I mean, I mean, like, it, it was this. And then here's what you do. You'd be like, baby, we got to hold on to what we got, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> doesn't make, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. <laughs> no. no. So here's what those were. Those, were. those were like the pregame for the conversation that you were going to have in person. The scripture says this, that in various ways and through the prophets and the friends of God, the patriarchs, God has spoken past generations. But then it says this in Hebrews 1.3, that he came in flesh to make it personal and he showed up in person. What is more understandable and knowable than a flesh and blood human being? God came in person to right the wrongs, to reconcile the relationship, and to stand with you face to face to say, let's get this right. So I've heard it said, like, like and, and you hear the, agno- like the agnostics say, like, if God is so big and God created all of this, how could we know him? And, and they're right. Unless God chose to be known. Unless God wants to be known. Unless the God of all flesh made himself vulnerable and stepped into history, in a sense, making himself naked and unashamed that the intimacy of the garden would be restored. God made this personal. God's love is personal. Okay, next, let's go to sacrificial God's love is seen in sending Jesus to be the perfect payment for sin. So that that word propitiation that we just read, and you're like, that's a big word. Here's what it means. It means the perfect and satisfactory payment for sin. Like Jesus absorbed God's wrath for sin on the cross, that there's no longer any more to pay. So now we don't make mortgage payments on a house that Jesus already bought. He said, I bought it, move on in. Quit making payments. Hebrews 10, 18, there's no longer any offering for sin. God's love is sacrificial. You know this, the one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might now become the righteousness of God in him. He's the perfect payment for sin. 
God's love is sacrificial. Let's keep going. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe that the love of, that God has for us, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And so let's look at the next, the next slide, please. God is present. God's, let's go, go to present. God's love is seen in sending Jesus to be with us as Savior, answering the question from the garden, does God really love me? Resoundingly, resoundingly the answer is, I came in person. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The answer to our questioning that comes forth from the garden, does he really love me? He came in person, the gift of God, John 4.10, right? If you knew the gift of God, Jesus says, and he's standing there in front of the woman at the well, that the gift is him. He's present. Okay. Next, that, that it's also secure. God's love drives out our fears of abandonment and judgment. 17 says this. By this, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in this world. Can, I, can we repeat that? Will you guys repeat that with me? As he is, so we are in this world. Now I'm going to read 18, but we're going to come right back to that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us, 19 says. Let me, let me stop right here and just say this. As he is, so we are in this world. How is Jesus? He's doing fine, right? He's God's son. He's like, he's adopted. We already talked about adoption, but he's adopted. He's not adopted. He's God's son. We're adopted. But he's the son of God's pleasure and delight. Fear has to do with judgment. Fear has its ultimate source in judgment. But we just read this, like Jesus bore our judgment. Jesus took our judgment away. If he took it away, what have we to fear? But when our hearts are afraid, anybody else, can you be gripped by anxiety and fear? Anybody else? When I find in myself fears and anxieties, I've got to trace them back to my fear of judgment. And then I've got to go to the cross where Jesus took my judgment away and remind myself that all that I get in this life are grace gifts, even the ones that are hard to swallow. Like, like judgment has been put on him that what is handed to me would be grace every second of it. 
So what do I have to be afraid of any longer? Like what if, do you guys, do you ever, do you guys baseball fans, you know what an indicator is? I once had a coach that gave the seventh sign indicator because he was extremely paranoid about signs being stolen. If you're a baseball fan, that's, that was a lot of counting. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll say this. The indicator is the sign that you give before you give the real sign. So you go to the, that one, and then you come up with that, and then the real sign. What if the indicator for us, the, the indicator for me that I don't fully understand today, in my, pre, in my present reality today, I don't fully understand God's love for me, and I need the gospel to wash over me again. What if the indicator was, I'm afraid. Like, his perfect love, Scripture says, drives out fear that I don't fully understand just how much he loves me today. I've got to renew and remind my heart of the story, restory my heart, remind myself, remind myself of his love for me, that my fears would be driven out, that no functional hell of some situation that I might walk in today or tomorrow is actually judgment at all. No, it's a grace gift meant to shape, meant to be something that is enjoyed, meant to be something that will make me who I'm supposed to be in God's glory. Okay, secure. God's love drives out our fears of abandonment and judgment. And also I'll go one further. Like when, when, and Jeff, you could probably back me up on this. When people come to us and they say, I think I've lost my salvation. And you're like, why do you think that? And they'll say that because I keep doing this thing, this thing, like this iniquity. I keep doing this over and over and over again, right? Which is just a reality of indwelling sin and being simultaneously a child and righteous and then also being sinful. Like, like how often people do that and it's the people that feel that weight over sin. Like I would be worried if they didn't feel that. But the, the question is this, what's bigger, the cross or your sin? Like if you break it down to that, like what is bigger, God's saving work or your sinning work? What's bigger, your ability or his ability? Who's mightier, him or you? When you boil it down to that, we give ourselves way too much credit. Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Able to present us before the throne of God faultless with exceeding joy. No one will be snatched from his hands. Of those who come to him, he will by no means cast them out. He's able to complete the work that he began in us. That ought to make us feel secure. Okay, last one. Practical. Initiating, okay. We're going to skip that one. That's maybe an entire different sermon. All right, practical. God's love is seen in Jesus coming as we love people. So I saved this one for the end, and here's why. Because I told you it wasn't going to be a guilt sermon, right? It's not going to be a guilt sermon. It's not going to be about Christmas guilt. It's going to be this. It's going to be because we have been so loved, we now love. And I've been meditating upon Jesus on the, or, or Jesus' parable of, of the greatest commandment, where he says, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that. That's not actually the gospel, y'all. In fact, it points us to the gospel that says, I can't do that. 
but Jesus perfectly did that. Love the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, strength, and love his neighbor as himself, right? He loved us. And for his sake, I can love. And because I'm loved, I love. But I, but I think of that picture of, of, the, of the good Samaritan where he says, all right. And this was a great one for Christmas too, right? Because we got schedules, man, schedules, events. And, and he says, all right, so there's this man, and he's on the Jericho Road, known for, known for being a place where, where robbers would jump out, mug people, and just leave him for dead. And a man is left for dead on the side of the road, on the Jericho Road of life. Like the roads we don't go down, right? I mean, but, the, but that some of us find. And that all of us ultimately will probably end up on. A priest walks by. There's, there's a priest and he skips on down the road. He's got duties. He's got to go to temple. He's got to keep himself ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And, and then the Levite comes by and, and he's got to do the same. And so we've got Christmas duties. We've got Christian things we've got to do. We've got so much activity going on and I can't break my schedule. I, got, I can't be flexible. And then there's this Samaritan. This, this person with whom the Jews had this racial tension with. This, this, this person that was for them an enemy, and he's flexible. He burns his calendar, and he gets off his horse. He puts the man on his horse. He trades places with the man, puts the man on his horse. He takes him to an inn. He nurses his wounds. He pays for it, and he says, I'm coming back. Who's that sound like? The, you know the question. The question is, who's my neighbor? Who was the one that proved to be a neighbor? And what does Jesus say? Or what does the man say? The man says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Let's do this. Let's pray. Jesus, we have been loved. Uh, my wife and my kids and this, the Stone Table family and just as we get set to even to merge with Delaware Baptist and become a church out there and a, a church that is going to reach that city, um, we have been loved. We as a people, we as generations, we have been loved by you. And, and with all the noise and the clutter and all, the, all of the the busyness that, that would war against just preparing room in our hearts for Jesus. We found ourselves, and I'm, I want to be chief amongst repenters here. I found myself saying, no room at the end. Ain't got time. I got to get to this. I got to get to that. I got I got. Lord Jesus, would you draw us back to understanding as we sit like children resting our heads upon your chest. You are a good, good father and you love your kids. And what manner of love has God given us that we would be called the children of God, lifting our heads, lifting our chins with 
dignity and identity. We are sons and daughters of the King. And we are standing in clothing that we did not purchase. We are standing in a record that we did not live. We're standing in a perfection that you lived. And because of that, Lord, we can lift our chins. And we can rest and we come boldly to the throne of grace. And we, as I was thinking of my grandmother saying, what's your hurry? Don't leave quick. Linger long. Stay here with me. Embrace your childhood and embrace my fatherhood. I love you. We have been loved. God, thank you for giving your son at Christmas that we would be called sons and daughters of the living God. God with us so that we might be with him. It's in your name we pray. Amen.